Good morning. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 40. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys are better than the 8.30 people. <laughs> All right. All right. Then this might be better. All right. Uh, my name is Charles Wilson. This is my lovely wife, Trine. Um, in all seriousness, um, she is the best person I've ever met before in my life. Um, I am humbled to be married to her. She has, over the years, just been an amazing force and a reminder to me of how good God is. Um, just her humility and her strength and her passion for Jesus has always been something that has helped me. And so I'm grateful um, that she journeys this with me. We have two boys, Kyrie and Charles. Um, we found Roanoke, Virginia, um, dropping our oldest kid off to Liberty back in 2016. We did not know this place existed. We are born and raised in South Jersey. And so when we think Virginia, we think Virginia Beach, and we would go camping at a place called Outdoor World. And so when we were coming up 81 through Tennessee and on the way back, it was a surprise to find the city. Uh, we moved to Dallas, Texas uh, back in 07, 08. We spent 10 years there, uh, loved doing ministry there. And at the, about the end of that time, we felt a transition was close. And so when we dropped off our kid and we were driving, feeling horrible that we were leaving our baby on the other side of the world, uh, my wife wanted to stop for ice cream. And so, of course, as a good husband, I said, I have no idea where there's ice cream in Virginia, and so go on your phone and find it. And so she fell asleep, and I said, great, 
I'm going to get to Tennessee before she wakes up and starts talking ice cream again. And 40 minutes later, outside of Lynchburg, she wakes up and she finds an ice cream place in Roanoke. So we stop a place called Brewster's to get ice cream. And while we were sitting there, I remembered I'd met a guy years back. Uh, they were part of a ministry called Acts 2, and we would take kids up to this camp in Branson, Missouri called Kids Across America, and we met people from Roanoke there. And so I sent him a message on Facebook, and I said, hey, bro, I'm in your town getting ice cream. And he said, hey, if you're getting ice cream, then there's a better place to get ice cream than Brewster's. And he said, come on over to Hits. And so I said, okay, I'll go over to Hits. We're not in a rush. We feel like horrible parents anyway. And so we went over to Hits, and... Uh, sat there for a few minutes and there was a gentleman in the back turning the chocolate and for me it reminded me of home uh, just having a mom-and-pop ice cream place and then we sat out by the greenway and and it was just people jogging and it was such a beautiful environment and it reminded me of South Jersey um, today that place is called Blue Cow um, and we went from there with the ice cream up to the star and that was the day the Lord began working on our heart for Roanoke. Uh, we didn't say anything to each other then. Uh, it was about a month later driving to Houston, and my wife turned to me and said, why don't we plant a church in Roanoke? And I said, yes, because I'd been waiting for two years for her to be ready for us to transition, uh, because our transition to Dallas was so hard, and I wanted to make sure she was 100% on board before we would transition here to Roanoke or anywhere where the Lord was sending us. And so that trip uh, we began to write down vision and, and what we thought the Lord wanted us to do here. We relocated in 2017. As soon as we pulled up into Roanoke, I got a phone call um, from this guy named Brett Johnson from a church in uh, Radford. And he said, hey, you don't know me. He was very loud, very hyper. <laughs> if you know Brett, it fits. Very loud, very hyper. And he's like, we got to get together soon. I'm so excited for you to be here. And I'm looking at the phone like, who's this weird guy calling me to come meet with me? And I had barbecue with him, and then he introduced me to uh, Jesse Fury and all the Bonhoeffer guys, and we became just great friends since then. And it was Jesse who said, you should check out um, Cave Springs. And so we came over back then. It was almost four years ago. You guys were over in the gym, and we worshiped with you back then. And during that time, we weren't sure what God was doing and why he called us here. As soon as we got here within two months, I said, Lord, Jesus is here, and I think you made a mistake. There's a lot of great churches here. There's nothing really for us to do. And um, I was really asking him for some direction during that time, and I had the opportunity to help and serve over at Belmont uh, Baptist Church with John Laughinghouse and that team. And during that first year here um, was the mission trip to Puerto Rico. And it was on that mission trip with you guys that I went where the Lord began to help me see where in the city he was calling us, why in the city he was calling us. Uh, and that was really um, very helpful. When we came back from Puerto Rico, we were helping Valley Bible paint their facility. You guys did some work there. And I said, Lord, all of my church plant training has trained me to go into an area where ministry can be sustainable, where people would love to come. But I'm feeling like you're calling us into the most challenging part of the city to plant a church. If we're going to have a church that's going to be sustainable in three years, shouldn't we go downtown or somewhere where people feel comfortable? And I'm trying to work through all my training and what the Lord was calling us to do. And then all of it kind of came together. And I said, this absolutely makes no sense. 
this is actually a bad idea to plant a church here, but I think that's exactly what the Lord wants me to get out of this, is that he is going to do the work. And so we uh, took ownership of that facility, the Villa Heights Baptist Church, um, back in the 60s. I think that these two churches used to do bowling trips together. I've seen some of the history stuff. And um, just God has been working on us. We started a campaign last year to raise a half a million to renovate the first phase of the building. And we're only $130,000 away from reaching that goal, which is amazing in the midst of a pandemic. Um, as a church plant who was only nine months out, and then the world kind of fell apart, that God has not only sustained our church, but we've grown. Uh, we had 18 new members in December. We have nine set up for new members next week, and we're almost reaching our financial goal for the building. So God has been merciful, and, uh, and you guys have been a part of that every step of the way, um, from, from showing up with us in the community to work on the building, um, to allowing me to lose weight and play basketball on Wednesdays with the guys here. Um, and get elbowed by some, I'll keep that person anonymous. That, um, but I mean, you guys have been great friends, Pete and Alan and Chip, and all you guys have really encouraged me and strengthened me. Uh, Cave Springs, you have an amazing church family. And so we are grateful for your partnership. Today, we're going to pick up Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is kind of like turning the page as we're going through the book. Chapter 40 does not sound, it doesn't read, it doesn't feel like any of the chapters before it. The first 39 chapters, um, to me, was pretty challenging because it's like God is pretty mad at his people and he's trying to shake her to be who he called her to be. And so we end right before this on this low note with Hezekiah. In the last couple chapters, um, you, you see him being threatened and challenged, and he turns to prayer. He lays the letters down on the altar. He turns to God, and God shows up. And then uh, he is sick, and he is ill, and he turns his face, and he, and he pleads with the Lord, and the Lord spares his life and adds 15 more years, which is a pretty amazing um, thing to think about, right? Like, like, could you imagine what you would do for God if he guaranteed you a certain amount of time, right? Like if God said to me, Charles, you got 20 years um, and, and I'll keep you, I, I would probably be jumping out of airplanes with no parachute, showing up to preach the gospel and challenging places because I'd be like, I'm invincible. And so this is where Hezekiah is. This is where his thinking is. And as 39 is ending, um, we see a failure on his side. In fact, so a few people from Babylon show up, and Hezekiah uh, gives them a tour. He gives them a tour of the town. It says in verse 2, he was pleased, and he showed the envoys his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the oil, the armory, everything. He just brings them in, and he gives them a full tour. And often when we think of Babylon, we think of Babylon, we think of Nebuchadnezzar, we think of just this big threatening group. But during this time, when Hezekiah is giving them this tour, they weren't a threat. They, Assyria, Assyria, th those guys were the big giants. During this time, Babylon was really a nobody. It's, uh, it's like Martha Stewart when she was like nine and her mother was teaching her how to wash dishes or Dale Earnhardt when he first got his driving permit. He, he, what, they weren't the big conglomerates that we know they became to be, but this is the imagery and the picture of Babylon during this time. And the Lord is not happy with Hezekiah's mistake. 
And the Lord says to him in verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who came from you, whom you fathered, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Like this is a bad tweet. This is a bad message. This is not good. He is really seeing the expiration date on the kingdom and the Lord has given him clarity that it's over. I am displeased with what you did. And of course, like a good leader and a good king who receives this bad message, what did he do? Hezekiah said, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. He thought there will be peace and security during my lifetime. That is a bad view. That is a bad leader. He is literally saying, so what you're saying, God, is everything will be okay while I'm alive. We'll have peace. Babylon's not coming in during this time. My kids may be tortured, and they'll be taken off, and everything that was stored up before me will be pulled away. But during my time, everything's going to be okay. Like, like he was actually spending a check on someone else's freedom. This is pretty poor leadership on his part. And so what happens? God is true to his word. They are taken off into captivity. They are um, stranded there for years upon years, generations. And this is where we find this letter in chapter 40 beginning, this word from Isaiah, who is being written to a group of people who were in a challenging situation. And how does God begin this? Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort and double. The double would have felt like, imagine your mother being your third grade teacher and you get an F on a paper. It's the pain of getting the F but knowing it came from your mom. And this is what's happening with God's people. It's, it's knowing that they are stuck in captivity, but it is God who directed the people who were coming in to chastise them. But the Lord starts it off with comfort. And this isn't comfort in the way that we are accustomed to thinking about comfort. It is actually an encouraging, a stirring up comfort. When we were beginning to do our church plan, I reached out to a guy who had planted a church in a city called Camden, New Jersey. And if you know anything about Camden, it's on the other side of Philly. It is a challenging context. Uh, back in the 90s, it would go back and forth for the murder capital of the world. Well, not the world, of the, of the country. And uh, I reached out to this church planner, and I said, hey, I'm here planning. Um, you got any words for me? And so he said to me, Charles, and he's born and raised in New Jersey. He's planning in a tough context. And this is his comfort to me. And if you don't reproduce yourself in four years, I'm going to drive up there. I'm going to do this to you. I mean, he is threatening me, and it felt so good. It reminded me of home. It was just a good, I'm going to get in your face, and I'm going to punch you in your gut if you don't make it happen. And sometimes we need that type of comfort, that sense of I care so much about you that I'm not going to let you off the hook. Get up from where you are. Let's go move forward. Now, there are times where we need it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. But there are other times where we need, you need to get up and do what God has called you to do. And this is the encouragement coming with this comfort. It is not just a sense of, I will be there to bind your wounds. It is a get up from where you are. 
Stop sitting there as if you don't have a God who can do anything. And God is giving this word to a people who probably felt like God had forgotten about them. And that's kind of the the context we need to remember as we're going through all of chapter 40, is that this is being written to a group of people who were struggling, who were trying to figure out if God still cared. And the first thing they are given the gift is actually God's faithful word. In the previous chapters, where, where they're threatened, where King Sennacherib is sending this threat to them, I call him Mikrib, where, where King Mikrib is sending these threats, that he's going to come in. This is what the Lord says to um, Hezekiah, verse 33 of chapter 37. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, shoot an arrow here, come before it with a shield, or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came, and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. Like God gives his word to be with them, to defend them, but it's so accurate. He says they, he will not shoot an arrow. He will actually go back out the way he came in. And the next few verses show that God did not lie, that he was sent back out, that they were not destroyed, that they were not successful, and God defended the people. My first point this morning is God's word is true, and God is faithful to his word, that God said exactly what would happen, and exactly what God said came true. So God's word and God always prevails, and the McRib always fails. Like Remember that as you go this week, And you see a sign for the McRib. Remember Sennacherib. He's a boneless, fake pork chop. And that's exactly whatever it takes for you to remember it. Greasy, filled with fat. It's nothing good. God's word prevails. Chapter 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are strong words. God said it. It will happen. It will come to pass. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what shall I cry out? All humanity is grass. And it is goodness. And it is goodness. Is, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Those are simple words, but those are strong words. It, 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 is, it is pulling us into this, this tension and this reminder that humans are weak. That, that we change our mind, that, that we can commit to doing something, and by the time we think it all the way through, we will decide to do something else. And it is a shame to put all of our hope and all of our trust in something that is fleeting. But God's word is faithful. God's word is true, and it remains forever. This is reiterated in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. A few weeks ago, uh, Dallas, Texas, um, was, was, was placed in a real challenging situation with a little bit of snow and ice. I say a little bit because it was only a few inches of ice and a few inches of snow. It's nothing 
for us right here, you know, give us a couple feet, we'll be okay. We have snow plows, we have salt, we have ice, we got snow boots, we got snow tires for our cars, like we're prepared. But in that region, they were unprepared for something like that to happen. In fact, it only took a few hours when the power went out and the heat began to go away. It seemed like immediately it turned into a third world country. The iPhone is a $13, $14, $1,500 device that, that can do so many amazing things, but immediately it was reduced down to a paperweight. Could you imagine owning a $70,000 Tesla with no electricity? It's just a block of plastic and metal sitting in your parking lot. My sister-in-law uh, called her and asked what they were doing, and, and they had the fireplace on, which is amazing. When we were in Dallas, we never turned our fireplace on. It's 106 most of the time. Like, why would you need a fireplace? It's really a, decor a decoration. We just put our Christmas stuff on it. Well, she was actually using chairs for fuel. And it is a very beautiful reminder that we put so much confidence and things that can be reduced down to a paperweight in a matter of hours. That, that you, you start reconsidering the blessings in your life when they're threatened. And that's what God is saying to his people. He begins to, to give this beautiful picture of how huge he is and how small we are. Well, verse 2, we get another view inside of God's heart here says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. This isn't always a common theme today of how serious sin is, but all of this is happening to them because of their sin. Like God takes sin seriously and he's provided a way for us to be forgiven for our sins. But this is sitting, and this is a reminder to them continuously of their sins. I think we live in a time now where people actually make excuses and minimize sin, as if something's changed, as if God no longer cares about it. In fact, we, 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 we kind of lower it, and we say, well, well that's, that's okay because, no, 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 God takes sin seriously. In fact, the attitude is almost as if God should be lucky to have us. Verse 3, we find a passage that sounds familiar to us. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And that's been made popular by John the Baptist. John 1, 23, he said, I am a voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make stray the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And then a few verses down, as he's giving this fiery sermon, and he is, he is in the wilderness, which is not an attractive place to go to church. As he's giving a message that is not attractive. Turn from your sins, turn from your wicked ways. You brood of vipers, as did anyone greet you this morning? You brood of vipers. You'd probably run and turn the other way, right? The greeters this morning said, good morning. How are you doing? Well, John's greeting was like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And people were coming. And then one day, he looks over and he sees Jesus. Verse 29, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. God on his terms has provided a way for our sins to be dealt with. We must be cautious how we defend sin, how we excuse sin, and how we ignore sin. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.19 Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of of blood of his cross. As we continue on with Isaiah chapter 40, we start to get more and more of this picture of how big God is. In fact, it goes in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance? and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or, or who gave him counsel? Who did, he, who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations, <laughs> they are a drop in the bucket. They're considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars, are not enough for fuel, or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered as empty nothing. So in these verses from 12 to 17, there, there, there is this sense, it reminds us a little bit of Job, where, where Job is getting this reminder or this education that God is pretty big. And I don't know about you, but we need often reminders of how big God is and how small we are. I don't, today, we don't really have a problem of, of always having enough confidence to believe that we are something, but I think we need more reminders of how huge and how big God is. And this is when he begins to kind of make fun of their idols and saying that you use this and you use these fine things for idols. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Since, we, since what we believe about God is so vital, we must constantly be on guard against worshiping a God that is smaller than the biblical God. Worshiping a God that is smaller than the real God is, in essence, idolatry. Man, this is why we pour over the scriptures, to find out who he is. Not only to find out who he is, but it tells us who we are. It tells us that he is huge, he is big, and that he loves us. And this is what's being poured into God's people who are going through a challenging time. For us, going through this last year was very challenging. Like for, for believers, we were struggling with can we gather, can we not gather. And I think in that time, we kind of got exposed to our selfishness. For us, it should have been a time of worshiping and praising God in the midst of restrictions. For people who don't know God and don't know the hope that lies in Jesus Christ, can you imagine them looking at us, worrying about what we can't do and not praising enough for what we do have and who we do know? There's a passage of scripture where Jesus takes his disciples and he says, we're going to go over to the other side. And then Jesus goes in the boat and he goes to sleep. And as they're traveling over to the other side, a storm comes. And as the storm is pushing the boat and the Bible says that there's water coming 
onto the boat, which means the threat was real. It wasn't a fake story. It wasn't a, a fake threat. Like the water was coming on the boat, and the disciples started looking at each other and running around and saying, what's going to happen? And, they, and this is exactly what they did. They went, found Jesus, woke him up, and this is what they said to him. Do you not care? Do you not care? It's bad English, but it's good because it showed that they were questioning if the king of the universe even cared about them. Now, of course, Jesus is the most important person in that passage, but there's something else that's going on in that story, that it says that when they went and they went out on the boat, that there were other boats with them. And can you imagine being on one of the other boats, knowing that the Messiah is in the center boat? And as you're looking over to see what's happening on Jesus's boat, that his students, his disciples, his followers were fearful and scared. Can you imagine the world looking at us in the midst of a storm? And instead of saying, Lord, I don't know what's happening or what's going to happen, but I know you are with me. Do you know what level of confidence that would do to the rest of the people who don't know the Lord? I think sometimes we get storms and we get ice and we get snow and we get challenges to remind us that we are small, but God is big and he is faithful and he is trustworthy. And this is what's happening through the rest of this passage as God begins to give them more and more faith-building words to remind them that he is huge, he is big. Lebanon, uh, the, the cedars in Lebanon, they, they would have imported wood from there. And to hear that, that that's not enough. I mean, they know the forests there were huge. The animals were, there's so many of them. And God is saying, it is nothing. In fact, let's just go through some of what God is saying about himself in 40 in the first verse, the comfort, my people, that is big. Like, who would willingly take on a bad team? Like, no one this year said, I choose to be a Patriots fan, right? You, you, you want Kansas City or someone who's good. God is saying, I, those people, the, those people who are really broken, and, and, and things are going bad for it, those are my people. God is identifying with a group of people who no one would want to identify with. But he is so faithful and so loyal. And not loyal in the sense like uh, my dog Chopper. We, we had a husky when I was growing up, and Chopper was so loyal. My dad would say, sit. He would sit. He'd throw a stick. He'd get it. If someone was riding a bike down the street, Chopper would begin to chase them, and my dad would whistle, and Chopper would turn back around, and, and my dad would pat him on the head and say, good boy. It, it's loyal in the sense not that Chopper was listening and obeying what my dad said. It was that my dad was committed and loyal to Chopper, that my dad fed Chopper, that Chopper knew who loved him. We are oftentimes kind of like Chopper, but God's loyalty is consistent. God's loyalty is faithful. God's loyalty doesn't, he doesn't change his mind. My people. In the second verse, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. God is gentle. There's so many ways he could have spoke to them, but he tenderly says, speak softly to them. In verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is real. 
In verse 10, he's strong and powerful. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He is sufficient. He is everlasting. Verse 28, he is limitless. He's inexhaustible. He's generous. Like just reading through God's word is a reminder and an encouragement no matter where you are. This is why we should spend time. This is why we should pour over his word. This is why we do Awana. This is why we do scripture memorization. It's because God's word, God's word is rich. God's word helps us get a proper view of who we are and a great view of who he is, even in storms and times of trouble. Like David, uh, there's this beautiful passage that I love in 1 Samuel. This is that in verse 30, chapter 6, sorry, chapter 30, verse 6, David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Like David is a beautiful example, if you watch his life, that his focus, even in his mistakes, was to turn to God. This is the reason why when he comes up to deliver the food, he was just a a Uber Eats driver bringing food to his brothers, and then he hears Goliath over in the distance, and he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is saying all these crazy things against my Lord? Well, why was he saying something different than the rest of the troops? Well, for the last 40 days, his brothers and all of them have been listening to the threats of this giant. But David was in his playlist listening and singing worship songs. He was having great exploits with the Lord. He'd been delivered from the lion. He'd been delivered from the bear. And when he showed up to a situation that was bigger than him, his God was already bigger than the situation. He didn't show up defeated. He didn't know how he was going to do it. He didn't know how it would happen, but God did, and God did it. This is why it's healthy to read passages like people are like grass. Or in verse 19, where God begins to dismantle the idols. That they're just things that you've made. They're like teddy bears where you have to lift their head up and keep them up. Like, like why would you turn to those things that can't do anything? And this is where we get the most trusted Beautiful passage in verse 31. You go to any dollar store, you can go to Kroger today and find Isaiah 40, 31. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. And when that is read out of context, when we miss over some of the most important parts of that, It's very good. It it, it feels good. It's exciting. But man, there's a very challenging word in here, and it is the word Lord. Those who trust in the Lord, those who trust in Adonai, those who trust in the master, those who surrender everything to him will be strengthened, will receive strength. We'll be able to run. We'll be able to walk. We'll be able to to, to maintain. we'll, We'll stay the course. And that's where we see God pointing his people. That all these things before you, it's alluring, it's attractive, but keep your focus on me. Keep your focus in my word. That will help you have a healthy perspective in times of trouble. That they actually become a little different when you keep God at the helm. 
Like my marriage is better today because Jesus stays continuously in the center. Like our ministry in a challenging context, like Alan said earlier, is difficult. It's challenging. There's enough to make us want to quit once a day. But if our focus is off of the Lord, if our focus is on our strength and what we can do, and we forget that the Lord is the one doing the work and that our strength may run out, but his never runs out and never ceases. That is comforting to me. That I don't have to hold ministry up. I, I don't have to hold this family up. I don't have to hold these things up. I just keep my focus on God and his word. That his word is true. And that his presence changes everything. And for those who trust in him, he'll renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I take comfort. Yes, it allows me to let go of my anxiety, but it's also inspiring to know that you are up to something. That when the problem or the storm, the diagnosis, and the threats are close, you're even closer. What an amazing testimony that in the midst of a storm, without de denying the truth of the current pain and pressure, we can actually rise higher than that and point to you, a faithful loyal, consistent, loving God. Lord, that's the salt and light that our valley needs. A bunch of people who are so focused on you that our lives, filled with love, spill over everywhere we go. Lord, we are on mission for you. Lord, how amazing would it have been in Israel for Israel, in the midst of Babylon, to sing praises and to have hope in their king. It would have confused the enemy. It would have been attractive to those who were hopeless. And just like them, Lord, you're sending us on our way to be those types of people, filled with faith, fire, and hope even when the days don't look good. So, Father, both sets of comfort, the inspiration, the aspiring, the stirring up, and also the comfort of knowing your presence is true and that you are near, even on the boat when it feels like you're asleep. In Jesus' name, amen.